Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. This is uh, great to have you again today. So uh, numerous on the show, as every week, uh, we're very lucky to have a great community to help ensure that our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China uh, 20 years from now. And this is going to be part of the topic today, uh, trying to look at uh, how we are doing when it comes to AI, machine learning, and cyber uh, against uh, China and what's going on in Ukraine and, of course, uh, with Taiwan as well. Uh, but we're also going to do deep, uh, deep technical dive today with our guest, uh, Joe Saunders, the founder uh, and CEO of uh, RunSafe. We're going to look at uh, memory-based exploits. We're going to look at 5G. Uh, we're going to look at supply chain, open source software. So it's going to be a lot of uh, great discussions on uh, really everything around cybersecurity and software innovation and and uh, uh, the importance of uh, uh, baked-in security and all that good stuff. So I hope you're going to enjoy the show. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to remind everybody that uh, we launched Learn with Nick. And if you want to check it out and you haven't done that yet, uh, go on learnwithnick.com and you're going to be able to have a, two coupon codes. If you're military, civilian, or veteran, uh, you can use the military military's 50% uh, off coupon. Uh, if you are uh, not uh, one of those, you can use the Let's Beat China and get 20% uh, off. Uh, we have a few seats left uh, before it goes away. And like I said uh, before, we are doing a partnership with uh, a great company we're going to announce uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to bring a ton of content, technical, hands-on, uh, deep dive, exercises, labs, really uh, getting access to a, a sandbox to put it to practice and really try things out on Cubase and cloud things and uh, data science and so on. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to also create a virtual world, uh, kind of a metaverse 2D with different rooms and different things to see. Um, CNCF companies able to create space there and share their uh, announcements and releases. And it's going to be a whole community of DevSecOps, digital transformation. And we're going to, we're going to be working on this with uh, the Linux Foundation and CNCF and many other partners. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So check it out. You know, go on with Nick. You have a 10-day free trial if you want to try it out. Uh, the video we just released uh, last week uh, was about uh, Digital Twin. So if you want to know why Digital Twin is so important if, if you're building uh, capabilities to be able to emulate uh, before you bend metal, uh, check it out. It's a pretty good uh, summary of the importance of Digital Twin. The video this week is going to be about the Uber hack and uh, the lessons learned so far on uh, how to prevent it and what happened. So it's going to be interesting to deep dive into what we know so far from the hack. Uh, and discussions on uh, Telegram with the uh, actual hacker. So it uh, will be fun. So check that out uh, this week when we publish it at the end of the week. Um, and finally, uh, if you have not registered yet, go to inanikoftime.tv and uh, do that uh, so we can notify you of these next videos and uh, the next uh, guests on the show. All right. Now I'm going to bring in a second Joe, but at first I want to give him uh, a pretty good... Uh, introduction because not only is a very good friend but he's also uh, uh one of the world's top uh, cyber expert and he's someone that's uh not only very kind and and uh, a very great human being but he's also uh a top expert that gets things done and doesn't just talk about things all day but actually does it and uh, that's pretty rare as you all know so we're pretty lucky to have him uh joe is the founder and ceo of run safe security uh they're a pioneer in uh immunizing software um, by using a, a pretty cool uh, capability that effectively will be able to protect um, the software 
embedded systems and uh, containers and cloud workloads. Uh, and you'll see how that, that, that happens uh, without any friction uh, when it comes to the developer experience and the ability to do it across really vast, diverse set of uh, software uh, technologies. Uh, in his career, he has built and scaled uh, uh, technology into companies servicing both the private sector and the, the public sector. Um, he advised uh, and supported multiple uh, companies, uh, but some of them that you may know is uh, Caprica Security, Sovereign Intelligence, Analyze Corp, of course, Thomson Reuters, uh, Special Services, TRSS, and Distill uh, Network. Uh, at uh, TRSS, Joe helped the law enforcement agencies to uh, identify natural, national security threats. And uh, he was uh, a member of the management team and uh, the VP of Business Development uh, at uh, Targus Info, which was acquired by Newstar uh, for $650 million in 2011. He's a, a speaker, panelist, of course, if you want to have him. Uh, on an event to do that is always fun. We did a lot of uh, uh, panels and events together. Um, and uh, he, he knows a lot of things about uh, pretty much uh, anything there is to know about software supply chain, 5G, AIML, IoT, and uh, even weapon programs. Uh, and because it's, he's, he wouldn't be who he is if he wasn't a great human being, uh, he's also the founder of the, the Children's Voice International uh, 501c3 nonprofit. So consider going uh, to check out and help those guys. Uh, they provide uh, scholarships for uh, survivors of uh, uh, child trafficking. Uh, so great, great cause, obviously, and uh, something you want to support if you can. So now, without further ado, I'm going to bring uh, Joe on the on the screen. Good uh, afternoon. How are you doing, Joe? Hey, I'm doing well, Nicholas. I th thanks for the the kind introduction. I think the only thing you failed to mention is, uh, you know, uh, you know, my competitive nature in chess against you. So I'm, I'm glad you <laughs> yeah. left that out in some ways. All I remember is, you know, kicking your butt at chess. After that, <laughs> I just erased it from my memory. And I, I finally, you've been practicing when I've been flying. So now that I haven't played for for two years, maybe three. I don't know how long that's been. Maybe you can beat me. You know, that's that's the best you can do, probably at that point. <laughs> yeah, try to you know maximize my ability to win while you have been distracted <laughs> with other things. <laughs> well, we certainly are gonna have to put it to the test, and maybe even doing live like we talked about, and and see what happens. Right? <laughs> All right, so you know, we we share a little bit of your story, but I always uh, let the guests uh, give us a little bit of their rundown on their journey. So we're gonna start there before we do a deep dive into tech stuff, 5G, China, Ukraine. I mean, we we handpicked pretty much every buzzword on the planet. But the fact is, in this case, you actually know uh, a lot about these topics. Uh, so it's going to be a very meaningful, interesting discussion. So over to you first for your uh, background. Well, you know, I appreciate what you've already shared. And, you know, I, I, I was a management consultant in the 90s, but started my first company in late 1999. Uh, and, you know, really got the entrepreneurial bug to uh, apply technology and to change economics doing it. And so, you know, through a couple different uh, startups and, and successful exits, uh, found my way to meet a co-founder of Run Safe Security, Doug Britton. He was introduced to me through a mutual colleague uh, named Stephanie Evans from Wilmer Hale Law Firm who thought, you know, uh, maybe it'll be like peanut butter and jelly. You put Joe and Doug together and hopefully good things will happen. And Doug and I uh, you know, had this kind of common bond and vision around creating security and enabling developers to add security without slowing them down and to 
you know, uh, fundamentally, really fundamentally change the economics from a security perspective for the defender. For all too long, we've thought about how much uh, people, uh, you know, spend to create defenses in their in their networks or you know in their software, uh, and you know, really thought if we could find a way to eliminate an entire class of vulnerabilities from being exploited and do that in a way that doesn't slow down developers, then we'd be onto something. And so the past few years, that's been our mission and our driving force. Uh, and we were fortunate enough, obviously, to, along the way to work with you a bit, Nicholas, around DevSecOps, and that kind of embodies ultimately the spirit of where we were going as a company at RunSafe. So uh, so with RunSafe, we're protecting you know, all sorts of uh, embedded software um, from cyber attacks. You know, we're working with Schneider Electric, we're working with Vertiv, we're working with, you know, the U.S. government, the Department of Defense on a number of weapons programs and a bunch of stuff in between all of that. And the common thread is how can we change the economics of the cyber attack to, to shift in the favor of the defender? And with that, you know, RunSafe was launched and RunSafe's been operating globally uh, over the past five years and growing fast, uh, you know, especially the past couple of years. Yeah, no doubt. It's been a, a pretty big success and, and uh, your approach was pretty unique, but people may not know, uh, you know, really first what are memory based exploits. You know, a lot of people uh, heard of zero days exploits, maybe. Right. Uh, what are exactly memory based exploits? How do you describe it to people that uh, don't understand it? Yeah, I, I like to say that memory-based exploits are an attacker's best friend. And, and the problem is all the attention we see in the headlines uh, usually are around breaches, you know, at the point of compromise, you know, like a phishing attack. We always hear about, you know, how many new systems have been compromised by virtue of a phishing attack and someone gains access. The question is what happens after somebody gains access? Uh, and attackers look for weaknesses or software bugs, or in this case, memory bugs, in software to deliver, you know, or to, you know, in, in employ their exploit to do something different with that software, something that wasn't intended originally. So, you know, remote code execution or use after free, um, you know, kinds of things to, uh, you know, maybe it's to extract data to determine location or to steer a Jeep or, you know, crash a, a drone, you know, all these things, once you gain access, what can you do with it? And so a lot of those exploits, as you say, um, you know, and a lot of the zero days that are out there are based on memory-based vulnerabilities in, in software that's used today. So, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, we, we all know that there are, that developers unintentionally introduce uh, bugs within their code. And so some of those bugs that get introduced are memory-based bugs. And what that means is there may be a problem with, uh, you know, um, enabling a, a developer or an attacker to create an information leak and really learn all the blueprints of how that software works so they can determine where to insert their malicious code. And so memory-based vulnerabilities are really one of the, you know, the, the worst things out there. Um, to give you an example, MITRE, uh, you know, in 2019 rated memory-based exploits as not only the most common, but the most devastating since they can wreak so much havoc. Uh, you know, a recent study found that 60 to 70 percent of the vulnerabilities in, in iOS or Mac OS are memory related. Uh, you know, I, I know your, your, your past guest, David Wheeler talked about Microsoft and 70% of its vulnerabilities in their products over the last decade have been memory safety issues in general. And even Google has said, uh, you know, publicly that 90% uh, of Android vulnerabilities 
are memory vulnerabilities that attackers can use to exploit. And so those kinds of weaknesses lead to information leaks, lead to buffer overflows, lead to heap attacks, return-oriented programming attacks, job attacks, and all those things that can overwrite existing code with arbitrary code and insert something that that software wasn't intended to do in the first place. So, you know, with that, you can see why memory-based exploits are such a big problem. Yeah, and that's probably one of the most common, well-known um, name is, you know, buffer overflow. A lot of people may have heard of that before, where effectively uh, developers make the mistake to us to um, to let uh, uh, a malicious actor effectively be able to write um, data into a, a, an object that that effectively has more um, more a bigger size than it can contain, and now you you're overlapping that, and, and that creates a uh, effectively a buffer overflow that can be exploited um, by effectively uh, not having enough um, space to put the, 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 the content in there. And that, that's very common, you know, particularly in, in lower level programming languages uh, like C, right? And, and that's where you see, of course, on, on Linux and Windows, like you said, a lot of the top uh, zero days, once you usually get to that stage of a buffer overflow, often you can then use that to, to get to uh, memory space that's usually not accessible and that can elevate privileges to root access. And then you can start exploiting that uh, as root and then you pretty much have full control of the machine. So uh, that's kind of uh, uh, a subset of the memory based exploit, I guess. So this, like you said, MITRE, you know, was very clear, you know, the largest uh, set of problems we see come from uh, uh, memory based exploits. So now that, uh, you know, we understand that, I guess you know we talked about some languages, right? Like like C, um, that are very um, um, low level and, and effectively um, rely on on the developer to do a good management, right? Of allocation of, of memory and the space to avoid those uh, memory based exploits. Um, what happens with what we call memory safe languages like Rust or Go? Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, modern languages like Rust or Go, you know, uh, offer the advantage. So, you know, the whole idea with Rust and Go and memory-safe languages is that they eliminate the potential for those, you know, out-of-bounds errors or those use-after-free techniques that could otherwise be exploited. So, getting an information leak from something like uh, Go or Rust is much harder because it's it's really containing the use of certain parameters that allow for that, you know, buffer overflow or what have you. Uh, and so, yes, uh, Rust and Go are becoming more and more popular. Um, you know, unfortunately, they're not uh, going to replace all the code that's out there already in the wild. If you think about how long uh, devices last inside critical infrastructure and, you know, you know, and across critical infrastructure and in all verticals, they're not going to replace C and C++ overnight, but they're an excellent choice if you're starting fresh with new software. Now, with that said, also, you know, there's the uh, there's a, a an attack that occurred recently in AWS called the firecracker attack. And if anyone wants to to learn about it, you know, they can kind of search on uh, firecracker uh, AWS attack where, it, it, you know, it is still possible, but much harder for attackers to compromise go or Rust. And so, you know, the whole idea then is if there are ways to lever, you know, some of the parameters to still implement a memory-based attack, 
then attackers can still you know, do remote code execution, do those exploits that we talked about. But with Rust, with Go, with others, the, the, the likelihood that that will happen goes way down because the ability to you know, create that weakness in the code is suddenly um, you know, much, much less likely because this, the language itself doesn't allow for those out of bounds parameters to be set up in the first place. Yeah, so effectively, it's a higher level language that um, has the baked in safety built in to prevent it. But you're trading off, obviously, some level of performance. Um, and that's, you know, uh, the whole debate. Obviously, a lot of people start to see Rust specifically as a good alternative, even for embedded systems, to start leveraging that uh, on the, uh, as, as an alternative to C, for example. And, and so... Uh, people looking at, at those options should obviously compare performances, but most use cases in, in the world, I would I would argue the difference is pretty negligible and you wouldn't see the difference, but uh, you, you also protect yourself against some of the uh, basic mistakes that really developers are making in memory allocations and things like that. So that's baked in, in, in the language. Um, you know, PHP back in the day um, <laughs> was also effectively preventing that Pack, you know, when I started, uh, I was what 14, 15, um, and and PHP. When we designed it, we, we made sure that uh, effectively. And by the way, PHP is is just abstracting C. You know, PHP is written in C, but that abstraction layer manages the, the memory aspect, and so variables in PHP are not assigned uh, any kind of allocation. They dynamically uh, assigned, so you can grow. Uh, and and you're not stuck with a with a size, and, and so you're never gonna end up in a in a memory leak uh, situation, unless of course they find a zero day in the language itself, which you know can happen. But uh, that's obviously a patch on the language side, not not on the application side. So anyway. Yeah, so, and just to add to that, I mean the software infrastructure that those applications write on, in fact, are on software binaries. That are likely written in these, uh, you know, C, C++ languages, uh, and therefore they, the underlying software infrastructure, can be exploited nonetheless. But 100% right, um, you know, on the advantages uh, as you described. Right. All right. So now we we I mentioned uh, the the product zero of Google, right? Where they they publish zero days, uh, fun in the wild, right? Every every kind of of zero day, not just uh, Google uh, related um, CVs. Or zero days. Um, so, what what do you think are the some of the key insights and imp implications for having a, a program like this? Is that is that helpful? Is that also uh, enabling malicious actors to uh, target things faster and go after different things uh, sooner the better? Or what's what's the situation that you see happening with uh, Project Zero? So I personally think what Google has done is a great service for everyone. And if, if people haven't checked it out, they should check out, you know, Project Zero. Uh, and in particular, I like the zero days in the wild, which is a spreadsheet. It will show you the zero days that were found, you know, with active attacks happening out in the wild. Uh, and what's interesting about it is, you know, even Google itself will say, hey, our data is not necessarily statistically relevant. But you can get a good you can get a good feel for the characteristics, the behaviors that attackers are using. Uh, it turns out, and just you know, for purpose of our discussion today, I I, I double checked it. Um, Sixty eight percent of the zero days listed in their zero day in the wild spreadsheet 
our memory-based uh, vulnerabilities uh, being exploited actively in the wild. So what's interesting then is you can learn what attackers are doing, learn some of the common mistakes, learn what the current trends are. Uh, again, it's not statistically relevant, but it's, you know, tr uh, uh, you know, directionally correct in terms of what are some of the most recent behaviors. Uh, so if you look at, you know, 2022, you'll see uh, all sorts of memory-based vulnerabilities out there, and it will characterize exactly what, you know, what, you know, what type of uh, problem there is. So memory corruption, logic designs, and flaws, um, you know, and then what is, who is the vendor and what is the product that's being actively targeted with that? So I personally find this to be a very useful resource to get current news on zero days found in the wild. A lot of them end up having CVEs that, you know, ultimately have patches that can be, you know, sorted through, but who knows, you know, how long these zero days have been out there. Uh, you know, and that leads to one of the great problems in software and software supply chain is just the exposure window uh, when zero days are found and even well before they were found, how long does it take, you know, for people to respond? Uh, but the other interesting thing is just looking at the root cause analysis, uh, you know, and, and Google or the folks behind, you know, Project Zero, you know, today are doing some of that analysis for you to check it out. So it's a wonderful resource. I check it out all the time. Our team looks at it all the time just to see if new, uh, you know, problems are emerging or new trends are happening or what the latest behaviors of attackers are, you know, that might be compromising various, uh, you know, software that, that's commonly used by everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's uh, a link uh, is on the chat. I know Gerald put uh, some links on the GitHub and the blog post uh, um, wiki stuff. And this is the link here uh, of the Zero Day in the Wild spreadsheet that you were talking about. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely something to keep track of and, and, uh, paying attention to what's, what's happening. I was, I was trying to look at, uh, uh, you know, they're keeping all the years, right? So they're keeping, um, 2018, the 2016, I see, uh, 2014. So I think that this started, uh, all the way back to 2014. And, um, if you look at the 2022, I guess I only see 23 so far, which is, not bad, I guess. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, there's certainly a lot more. Like 2020 was the greatest no, uh, count of zero days found in any one year. Uh, and it was an astronomical number in 20. I, I think reporting has gotten better. I think CISA has helped. Um, right. And, and just awareness in general, you know, I think with software supply chain attacks and all the visibility and all the security vendors that are working on it, uh, for whatever reason, there was a dramatic surge in zero days reported last year. It was close to a thousand. Uh, and if you look back, you know, over CVEs over, you know, past 20 plus years, the surge was so high this past year. Uh, I have to think that, yes, their attacks are probably, you know, way up, but also the reporting's gone way up as well. Yeah, it's on both sides probably. A little bit of a mix, right? Agreed. <laughs> right. All right, so now that uh, we talked about the zero days, tell us a little bit about what you see on the software software supply chain side, and and do you feel like uh, we underrepresent uh, the risk? I do. I think we're only getting started, and you know, with with DevSecOps, with integrated development teams, you know, certainly there is an opportunity going forward for people to share data about their software practices, about their software composition, 
about their software bill of materials. Uh, and so, you know, we have seen a number of attacks, but we also know that folks like Gartner are predicting, uh, you know, that 45% of organizations by 2025 will have a software supply chain, uh, supply chain attack administered on their enterprise. And I think that's underreporting. I think Gartner is certainly being conservative in this case, so as not to be alarmist. Um, and that's not always the case. You know, we usually get a lot of data that that you know might scare people. Um, but in this case, I think it's underrepresented. Why? Because you know, uh, and you you know this, Nicholas. I mean, open source software is here to stay. Everyone should be using it. Is using it, uh, and there's a lot of great benefits in using it from a security perspective. Why? Because so many eyes are on the code. Uh, so many different organizations use that code and rely on it. Um, and of all these practices that are out there. With that said, there is still exposure. There is exposure to the maturity level of the software development practices within the supply chain. We have one client who uses uh, the term, their, uh, their Kevin problem. And Kevin happens to be an open source developer that's maintaining a piece of code that's actually part of critical infrastructure today. And I don't think Kevin, and I'm just, I'm hiding his name. I don't think Kevin realizes the extent to which his open source software is being used on mission or, you know, critical infrastructure uh, applications. Uh, what happens if uh, Kevin, you know, suddenly stops updating, you know, uh, you know, releases or updating the software for, to fix new vulnerabilities and bugs, we have to account for that from, from other perspectives. So I, I guess I say all that because I think the visibility on the software practices within the open source community should be uh, even higher than they are today. But also, you know, fortunately, I think there's a lot of good actors in, this, in the open source community and a lot of good you know, uh, sets of code bases that are being used. Um, another data point I have, one of my customers uh, deploys software across critical infrastructure Today, only 20% of the code is open source software. They say by 2025, 2026, 60-70% uh, of that software they use will be open source software. And what that means is they need to have practices, they need to build those practices today to understand how they're gonna make that transition. But as they make that transition, the number of developers who touch your product, you know, goes from a small team, three or four, to 10, to 20, to 100, to thousands of, developers are contributing code that go into your products. So we have to get our arms around, you know, what are their software practices? You know, what are the vulnerabilities that they introduce in their code? What is their ability to respond to, you know, uh, vulnerabilities to bugs and, and, and deliver fixes? And what does that whole process look like? So software composition is important. Software bill of materials is important. Uh, but just understanding the software methodologies is also important. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess, you know, the, the how do we define software supply chain anyways, right? I, I hear you talk a lot about uh, open source, but uh, obviously um, the supply chain of software doesn't stop starts and stops with open source software. Uh, you would have also a lot of dependencies on SaaS uh, services. You've seen recently a lot of breaches of pretty big service providers from Okta to Microsoft to others. Um, I guess that that impacts that would that would be considered also right uh, an attack on the on the software supply chain and so many companies are depending on on third party SaaS services or PaaS or IaaS um, that that would fall into that that category of attack right software supply chain attacks on the SaaS side of of the house. 
Yeah, and, and really it's any software vendor that delivers software to you. So you're right, it's way beyond open source software. It includes SaaS software that you use in your enterprise. Uh, you know, um, you know it, one of the big issues with SaaS enabled software that's helping to operate uh, enterprises is just the amount of data, sensitive data that you might have in SaaS companies. Uh, and naturally, if that data gets compromised, uh, then, then you know, you could lose very significant, you know, uh, monetary, very significant monetary valued information, um, not only about your customers, but about your business practices and, and things like that. And so, you know, I think having visibility on, you know, um, are, are the controls in place to ensure that your instance of that SaaS software isn't exposing other systems, uh, certainly on the, the APIs related you know, uh, API security is a big deal. So, how, you know, the, the reality is, to your point, there is a series of interdependent software applications that really make enterprise function and commerce happen. And so, you know, with the integration of all those different systems, with the integration of, you know, uh, software you're getting from a third party, if you have third parties who are contractors to your organization, they're obviously a part of your software supply chain as are the developers that you have in-house, as are open source software. So all those are absolutely components and it's complex. Can you imagine what it's like for a CISO today? And I know you can, Nicholas, but think about it from that perspective. It's hundreds, if not thousands of applications and it's, it's tens of thousands of developers touching code. You know, we need to get beyond check, uh, you know, uh, checking the box kind of security um, and so we need ways to provide insight, automate, and reduce risk just overall, reduce that t attack surface in general. And I guess, you know, that that's why I'm, um, you know, it's interesting, right? Because when Garner says 60% of whatever the number was, by definition, it's wrong because I can tell you when you start looking at each company providing services and the adoption of SaaS services, those services also use dependencies themselves. And uh, so that compounds the volume of potential threats. If you look at most of these services, and I've been helping a lot of companies, right, trying to do business in DoD. So about 750 companies over the last three years have worked with me to take their SaaS service and bring them into an air-gapped DoD-centric, you know, universe. And uh, I can tell you most of those designed uh, were not designed for air-gapped uh, and were dependent on so many services, right, uh, third-party SaaS APIs, things, uh, so they had to move off of that and bring them as container instead. So I see a movement also of like people bringing back stuff as containers and, you know, removing a lot of dependencies because they're starting to get worried about, hey, we don't know much about this company we're using here. Uh, they're providing us a key service. But um, if we're going to start setting to financial sector, healthcare, government, they're going to want to have this um, well controlled and on their, you know, their instance of their clouds, gov clouds, right? Um, so there, there are a few key services. I always told people to never use a multi-tenant. It's not just, Hey, it's on the cloud. It's not cloud versus on-premise at the end of the day. That's all, uh, data centers <laughs> that we call it a cloud or not. Right. But, but the fact is what scares me more, I guess, is multi-tenancy versus single tenant. Right. I think there are a few services I would never put on a multi-tenant stack. Uh, the, there's three of them that I'm thinking about now. The first one is identity management because your, your identities are so important. So using a SaaS service, multi-tenancy service like Okta, I would never do that. I would move it to a, to a single tenant on my cloud 
right? So you could you could still use a cots, right? Or paying or whatever poison you pick, right? Uh, but it's it's I'm not saying build it in house. I'm just saying have a single tenant, right? That's so that identity is number one. Number two would be policy enforcement point for zero trust. When I when I see DOD even thinking about using uh, Zscatter, uh, which could not at the time, you know, move their control plane to the gov cloud, uh, that seems to be a complete uh, total nonsense and massive risk. If if that gets compromised, effectively all access control to DOD would get compromised. Uh, so using a multi tenancy hosting that we have no visibility on, right? You've seen Okta when they got breached, they waited four months to tell people, right? That all that stuff is is very dangerous. And then the the the, the third one would be um you know kind of the uh um all the cyber response and, and kind of you know the uh so 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 we have the, the identity piece we have the policy enforcement piece and uh and then you know th th there's there's always some services that you wonder okay should i should i run that on the cloud as a multi-tenant stack or not but really I, at the very least right policy enforcement point uh identity management Right, those two. I feel like putting that on the on the SaaS service would be pretty scary. What What do you think about the multi tenancy aspect versus single tenant? Well, I think I think you're exactly right. And and you know, in the issue, of course, though, is if you extend this out, um, you know, beyond your enterprise and think about you know five G networks and, and the like, there are all sorts of issues that that kind of creep into play. But if you're thinking about you know SaaS applications. Uh, and whatnot, I agree, uh, you know, on the multi-tenancy versus, um, you know, with identity, um, you know, and, you know, naturally, I think that, uh, you know, people need to review the whole flow of data and the whole flow of applications that is interacting with their systems. And, you know, if you don't have your arms around that, you need to, because th that's where you'll kind of figure out what the what you know what the path to compromising and getting your crown jewels really is and the last one i'm thinking also is a git repo right uh, so many people use github or, or gitlab but but if your crown jewel becomes git because you're moving to GitOps and embracing it infrastructure as code configuration as code policy as code effectively someone getting into your git repo will compromise your entire stack all the way to access control right and so uh, i think multi-tenancy of a git repo is also a pretty scary thing uh, the more you adopt DevSecOps, the ICD, you know, GitOps, the more of a problem is going to become. So that's the top three for me. All right. So clearly, <laughs> I, I agree. I think the risk is vastly under, underrepresented. I think we also don't find out about some breaches that happen, in my opinion. I think uh, some companies, uh, because of the lack of action from Congress in terms of laws, mandating some type of reporting, and uh, also the fact that there is really no consequence, right, for, for the C-level execs and and people get away with stuff. I mean, you've seen maybe the Uber CISO guy getting in trouble, but uh, that's probably the exception to the to the rule here. And they, they did a lot of egregious things to get there, you know, so it's not like uh, the common use case. You know, when you see companies like Okta, right, it's only 2.5% of the customers. Well, okay, but, um, you know, 2.5% of customers could be a lot. And if in the 2.5%, you have the U.S. government, that's, that's a problem too, right? So it depends. Who is in. If you're in the 2.5%, you're going to find that 2.5% to be uh, a problem, right? So it's always based on your your self-centered uh, universe. But, uh, you know, I, I, the fact that they waited four months to really disclose it and, uh, you know, what you've been seeing with all the attacks, again, you know, the solar winds, 
you know, where they stay dormant in a third party service. And because you have really no visibility, let's face it, you know, the SaaS service, FedRAMP or not FedRAMP, I can tell you there is zero visibility from the government standpoint. Uh, and the federal agencies have zero visibility in what's going on inside of these enclaves in runtime. So there is no access to continuous monitoring. The, the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of the SaaS services are creating Gov versions of Zoom and whatever service, pick your poison, right? They all create their FedRAMP version of, of that. But I can tell you the, the, the visibility the government agencies get on that multi-tenant um, stack is non-existent. And, uh, and really, I don't know how you defend something in 2022 without full transparency on the login telemetry and, and seam and saw access to that, that service. So, so any service that effectively creates uh, a wall um, between your continuous monitoring capabilities and the service is probably not something you should use for anything critical, right? Would you agree with that? I do. And I think monitoring is a key aspect, uh, you know, and just finding out um, certainly what what application performance is doing. But I think there's an opportunity for people to look at software crashes in general. And looking at software crashes can be indicative of either some kind of compromise that's happened or or it could also be indicative of uh, vulnerabilities or bugs that scanning tools right. haven't found in the first place. So by all means, you know, the, the monitoring of your software infrastructure of your deployments, absolutely essential ultimately. And I think that really closes the loop so people can get a good feel and reduce risk. Yeah, no doubt. So you, you touched about it, uh, talked about it a tiny bit, but um, you know, a lot of people have different opinions about open source, right? I think a lot of people agree that uh, more eyes on code is, is great, gives uh, the ability to not only get people to contribute and make it better, but also find issues more rapidly, you know, putting your head in the sand. I remember when we put the, some uh, satellite capability uh, that was never seen before ever by the public in uh, DEF CON, I think within, I think it was like five minutes. I don't even, it's a very short amount of time. They were completely rooted um, and, and no one had seen it before. And, and, and so the, the, the concept of putting your head in the sand and hoping for the best is obviously not working. And that's kind of what the DOD and the government was really focused on doing, right? Is, is like keeping it opaque and upsack and making sure no one gets to see it. And, you know, and hopefully people are not going to find a way to get in. Right. Uh, although that doesn't work when you start connecting stuff and you start thinking, you know, JADC2 join all domain uh, com command and control, uh, connecting the IOT of military stuff together. Right. Um, so, you know, where is the line, right? Because when I open source platform one big bang and, and stuff, a lot of people complain, right? Because I'm always talking about, you know, beating China, but then I'm giving them access to effectively the, the DevSecOps foundation of of the department. But but my take was, well, we need adoption from the DIB and the, the contractors and, and other companies. And that's more important, right? To get everybody aligned and everybody working together and, and getting access to the best of breed than than giving access to China because you know China will will find a way to do it anyways and they will probably hack one of the companies anyways, but at least it spreads faster by making it widely open. What what what's your take on this? Well, to me, yes, there is a trade off, but there's a clear cut decision, uh, and that is to adopt open source software. And when I talk to people, I say, you know, why don't you write, uh, you know, your own calculator for your e commerce application? 
You know, <laughs> why, why don't you just write your own calculator if you don't believe open source is, is useful? You know, and you can hire an extra 10,000 developers to build your systems. <laughs> and it, it just doesn't make sense, right? Productivity yeah. uh, goes way up if you adopt open source software. But in addition to that, you know, even if you write your own calculator to do your own calculations on tax or whatever it is, right? Even if you do that, you're going to make your developers are going to introduce vulnerabilities and there will be fewer eyes on those vulnerabilities and likely scanning tools aren't going to be able to necessarily identify all the vulnerabilities you introduce. So you get, you know, I hate to say the term, but you get the network effect of so many people who have deployed that same software. And yes, that increases the attack surface in one dimension, but it reduces the attack surface in, you know, where, where it really matters, where the vulnerabilities are. And so again, that's why I go back to, you know, uh, visibility of your supply chain, identifying the components that are in your software bill of materials. Uh, those are all really good practices to understand what your total overall exposure is. But it doesn't make sense to simply write all the code yourself. And we, you know, there's still some organizations that insist on that. And I can still guarantee you they have vulnerabilities they don't even know about they may never know about and their software is exposed. So I think the trade-off between productivity and security is a simple one in this case. Productivity goes way up and I, I actually misspoke because security benefit goes way up as well. So, so you know, um, there's no doubt in my mind, people should be adopting open source software. They should be developing their practices around software supply chain, software composition, software bill of materials, DevSecOps, DevOps, you know, develop those software practices and incorporate, you know, uh, open source software into your code. Yeah, I'm sure you agree with me ultimately. Oh yeah, I should have brought you um, in some of my meetings at the Pentagon where I had people argue that uh, the duty should not use any third party code and we should build everything from scratch even if we're a little bit slower, which is not just a little bit, I think they don't understand it's not just a little bit slower. It would be like the difference. I always say, you know, that I'm, I always say that I'm worried about the duty getting breached, no doubt, but I'm also worried about the fact that the duty would potentially become so irrelevant that no one is trying to hack us anymore, right? I don't know which one is worse, right? So, so the, <laughs> the, the balance, right, about, you know, uh, velocity, right, and 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 what you think, what some people, not you, but some people think is, hey, I'm going to do less, uh, I'm going to take less risk by not using open source software, despite the fact that they're missing the point that, hey, we have access to the source code, we can see what's going on, there's more eyes on it, right, versus like some black box that you have no clue what's going on, it's compiled code, you you cannot really scan it very well, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, you know, very tough to assess, right, so you, you could have a bunch of vulnerabilities, right, uh, the fact is, there's a lot of CVEs. Look at Atlassian, right? The code is not open source. It didn't stop them from being the worst disgrace in the history of software, um, right? So, so clearly, you know, you, you have all these use cases, and and people argue, right? Like Kubernetes, right? They, I had I, I had a team come to me and say, hey, we had this great great idea. We're gonna create, we're gonna recreate Kubernetes from scratch. <laughs> and I was like, what are you saying? You know, what? How did you come up? with a genius idea of spending a billion dollar of taxpayer money to end up recreating something that already exists uh, and probably do it worse and, 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 you know, not in a timely fashion. Yeah. And, you know, uh, general Tuhill, Greg Tuhill is, you know, the director of the cert division 
at Software yeah. Engineering Institute, Curry Mellon, obviously. I need to bring him on the show, Greg. I forgot. I'm going to do he that. He would be a great guest because he can talk about studies that they've done on the benefits of open source software. And I am all in with him. Uh, and he, so he has studies going back 20 years on security. He has, uh, you know, um, studies on productivity gains. And so, you know, I, I think he's a, a leading authority on the matter, given his, you know, now recent role as the director of the CERT division. Yeah, I worked with him uh, first at DHS, and then he, he became the first Fed CISO, and then uh, uh, worked a lot on Zero Trust with a uh, software-defined parameter, and then he, he joined AppGate, uh, where he was, uh, uh, you know, kind of the leading company on, 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 on software-defined parameters. So, and now another CERT. So, and I know we're going to get into 5G a little more, um, but you know, just the idea, you know, since you mentioned zero trust and we're talking about open source software, just the idea of, you know, trusted software that you write yourself that, you know, and the, the fallacy in that, the same is true in, you know, building a trusted network. If you can imagine right. a trusted network, like yeah. as soon as you say it's a trusted network that no one, you know, no one really lost. Right, you've lost. So it's similar to that. Yeah, and it, it it doesn't scale too, right? That that might be true if you're one, you know, one person, right? But uh, you stop bringing people devices and nonsense and scale and cloud and right and and everything falls apart, right? So it's that's the other thing is you know uh, scale and and resiliency and and dependencies and and so you know when i looked at uh obviously platform one and the work we've done and i see uh now seven nations use platform one big bang open source right i've seen dozens of dev companies adopting i've seen banks i've seen healthcare companies uh, i've seen even uh cncf companies use uh the stuff right so so clearly the adoption is really one of the most successful um you know engagement with industry um outside of some of the ic stuff i think for dod it's only of the first i think for the ic ic is pretty good you know the the nsa particularly is very good at open sourcing stuff and sometimes we don't even know where it came from but uh it came from <laughs> nsa you know uh so they're pretty good at that they're also pretty good at getting some of their exploit getting leaked but that's a different story uh but you know if <laughs> if you uh if you look back right at some of the um uh, kind of push we've done, you know, with platform one and, and, and kind of the traction you've seen, have you, have you seen people talk about, about the stuff we've done in DevSecOps on the, on the industry side? Well, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, at RunSafe, as you know, our, our tools, uh, got certified as part of the program. We participate in iron bank. Uh, and when we talk to other organizations, uh, you know, folks like Lockheed Martin were obviously uh, significant advocates of platform one. Uh, and so it's spreading in a significant way in my book. And, uh, you know, uh, and the point that you can simply, uh, you know, develop a practice that's already, you know, kind of take the guessing work out of it. Here's a best practice for, uh, you know, how to build your, to dramatically improve your software development process, um, you know, is a big deal. And you think about an organization like, Mass Mutual. I look at what you did and what the Air Force did, uh, implementing DevOps and DevSecOps in a in a massive way. Right? Uh, Mass Mutual has something like eighty to one hundred development teams. You know, several different projects going on at the same time, and they all had. If you go back a couple of years, they all had very different software development practices. You had no idea 
if your developers were in fact testing. You had no idea if they were employing any automated techniques. You, all you could really do is, is ask if they had done something. So what I like about the maturing um, uses in automated pipelines and whatnot is also then the ability to sort of track what has been done. And so, you know, there's new solutions out there that are kind of tracking as well. And I think that's a great step forward because, you know, it's sort of the notion of trust, but verify, you know, you've got all these best practices, implement them, follow the procedures. And if you do, good things happen. If you start, you know, I, I go to, I, I use a silly example. If I go to Starbucks and I notice that the barista and the, you know, in the order, the person taking the order, don't follow the steps, their error rate goes way up. You know, they mess up your drink. They, they, they add too many shots of caffeine or whatever. They, they forget to add the vanilla. You know, I know you like all the foo-foo components into your coffee, Nicholas, but um, you know, if, if they go out of order, the same thing with pilots. Uh, my father-in-law, uh, and I know that's a big topic for you. My father-in-law was, was a check pilot uh, at US Airways and U United and, and different airlines. And they would intentionally mess up the order uh, in which they relayed information to pilots. And when they did, the error rate went way up because they were expecting orders, you know, and they could prepare their mind for information that comes in a similar way. I think having defined steps that you automate uh, in, the, in, in the CACD process is very similar to that. And so if we can monitor and enforce that people are actually implementing all these steps, uh, then, then everybody wins. And with platform one, you know, having a, a, you know, approved checklist of tools you can use was a huge step forward for organizations. And, and I just go back to mass mutual and say they had 80 development teams, which meant at that time they had 80 different software development processes. And I'm not saying you have to impose, you know, the process, but you need to impose the discipline and check all the boxes uh, in a positive sense. And so, um, you know, organizations like Lockheed Martin were uh, huge fans of, of Platform One. And we, we talked about what we had done with you all. Uh, that was instant credibility for us, uh, given their excitement about it. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you kind of hinted at it, but we're going to get into 5G now. So I guess when you look at uh, what's going on in 5G, what's really at stake? And uh, what do you think are the current issues, both on the, on the cyber side, the physical side, the, the supply chain side? Where are we on, on the fight? Everybody, you know, I, in fact, I just uh, this week, funny enough, here in the uh, middle of nowhere where I live, uh, they finally got us uh, a 5G antenna. So I have 5G on my phone. So I finally have it here. So that probably means it's happening everywhere else because I live in the middle of nowhere. So tell us more about this. Yeah, well, and, and that's one of the things is people like you are always the late adopters on technology and, you know, have to catch up with everybody else. It's it's good that you're you're joining the 5G party. Uh, no, uh, you know the way I look at 5G, it's there, there's a lot more at stake than just security, that just technology for technology's sake. I think there's an entire economic, you know, kind of competition going. If I look back to 4G and 4G adoption, you know, Verizon, AT and T, other telcos kind of paved the way. They they invested in infrastructure, uh, and what was the result of that? That meant that application providers, uh, data companies, and other folks enabling commerce, you know, would be able to, you know, do what they did, you know, on the latest technology, on the, on the next generation, you know, kind of networks, if you will. And so those companies invested heavily in doing that. 
Uh, and because more and more applications got built on those networks and those on that infrastructure, uh, Verizon, AT&T and, and others had an advantage. You know, they, their technology was adopted. If I fast forward to 5G, I think about it in the same way. It's kind of a competition. Uh, and whoever really controls 5G infrastructure, 5G, uh, you know, networks, you know, is going to pave the way for all that commerce that's going to follow. It's something like, uh, I've seen some forecasts, and I, I can share this link, I don't, I'm sorry I don't have it, but something like $3.6 trillion are at stake uh, in terms of future economic activity over 5G equipment, over 5G networks. And something like 25 million jobs or more are at stake over who wins kind of the 5G race and who controls and operates those networks and what technology is in, in that. And so, you know, I look at China and I look at the adoption, you know, we struggled in the United States, we struggled around, uh, you know, how do we roll out that mid-band adoption of 5G, you know, spectrum, if you will. Uh, and you have, you know, kind of the high band and low band and they have pros and cons, but the mid band there is the sweet spot for, you know, uh, 5G activity that we all expect, you know, going forward. And, you know, China clearly had a huge lead on, on that. And you can imagine if you're the provider of, you know, infrastructure in, in a country that has the huge lead, that means you have a huge advantage economically to roll your technology out globally in other you know, areas to build that infrastructure. Uh, and so you can imagine what's at stake here, you know, and the U.S., uh, you know, is and has been behind. So from a technology and security perspective, if we move past the economic, you know, uh, stake, if you will, you know, there are both implications, you know, um, certainly there is security implications. And we talked about zero trust a little bit. You know, I, I've heard in the past, a lot of people, you know, talk about, like, like I said before, trusted networks, um, you know, and if we just had a trusted 5G network, everyone would be safe. And it's, it's actually the opposite. You know, uh, as soon as you say you have a trusted network, it's never going to actually be trusted. You know, it will be compromised. You know, imagine, you know, the uh, contractor that goes out to service equipment, they can potentially implement something that compromises that otherwise trusted network. And so I think this is where supply open source software supply chain, software supply chain, uh, and, you know, your supply chain of equipment for that infrastructure all intersect. And given what's at stake on the economic front, you know, developing those best practices to protect that software, to implement zero trust in those networks uh, is really, you know, what's needed going forward. So, you know, all those software protections and 5G devices, you know, are absolutely needed. And I go back just to kind of finish the point. As I go back, there was a study by GCHQ a couple of years ago, and you looked at software that uh, Huawei had shipped. You look at the source code and you look at the, 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 the end product that was produced through the compiler. And at first, GCHQ couldn't find any differences. They then asked for details about the compilation process and found that uh, in the compiler in just post-compilation steps, there were areas where backdoors could be inserted. And so we need ways to counter those kinds of sneaky attacks into software that gets into these 5G networks. Otherwise we run the risk of, you know, not just losing on the infrastructure side and the application side, 
but also on the security side. So I think there's a lot at risk in 5G. Uh, and I'm curious, Nicholas, if you agree, because those are kind of my thoughts at a macro level where I think there's a lot at stake. Yeah, but I, I also think, you know, effectively, if you miss the 5G race, you're going to miss the, the next one because it's going to be very tough to catch up. I mean, you can leapfrog, but that's pretty rare at that point because they have the benefit of all the adoption, the revenue, the the technology experience, the you know the 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 massive scale. So, and the fact that you know it, it took so much effort, you know, for people to to say, hey, we're not going to use Huawei uh, technology, and many nations has to stand up after many times deals were signed to go back and say, hey, maybe we should not let that happen. You know, <laughs> maybe too little, too late. Uh, Robert Spaulding, you know, former general, is a very good. I'm going to invite him to the show uh, because he's he has a great uh, set of insights when it comes to China and the way they they do business and the way they they sneaky you know uh, play their games to to get into the like you said having that uh, ability to to demonstrate first that hey there's here's good here's a battery no issue and then there's backdoors built in that are very tough to find. And they're, they're hoping you're not going to find it, of course. But uh, that's a pretty scary, uh, you know, thought. And it's just like TikTok, right? Letting letting China have foothold over our kids' education and, and, and kind of uh, information gathering uh, aspect is, is just mind-boggling to me. But uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, I have um, a teenage daughter, and uh, she uses TikTok all the time. And... Uh, you know, it's it's if if you can correlate, uh, you know, um, children and maybe OPM data breach data with five with uh, TikTok uh, application usage and location, it's a scary thought if you let your conspiracy theories go. But to me, it's not so much about you know that conspiracy. Ultimately, thinking that all that could happen, it it just should motivate you to take extra caution in how we think about the uh, business applications we deploy and the security we employ. Yeah, I think we kind of passed the conspiracy now because honestly, after the last, I don't know if you've seen the last testimony of uh, um, that lady from TikTok that went to a Congress again and, and talked about what they share or don't share with, with China and the CCP. It felt pretty pretty obvious to me that uh, they don't want to answer the questions and that they have Chinese employees on peril, uh, both with Biden's, but, but even at TikTok, uh, proper, and, and while they claim they have, you know, um, mitigation to uh, control access, there's a lot of senior executives that are Chinese, and and she refused to enter whether or not they were a member of the CCP. And obviously, obviously they're going to be members of CCP. You know, it's just what it is. Uh, they don't really get a choice in China to say no, anyways. That's what people need to remember. Uh, so you know, the, the, and moving the data, you know, Trump tried to, uh, the Trump administration tried to, uh, you know ban it and then they, they committed to moving the data to oracle right but th th that's useless right uh i mean it's not bad but it's useless because if chinese still have access to the data it's just it's just like okay you just made a hop you know now i have to take it from oracle back to china instead of just straight in you know but that doesn't change much and well, uh, when you look at the the data they capture i don't know if you looked at the terms and conditions but they they get all your apps running it, it's not just geolocation and stuff it's every file you have on the phone file names um so every file you download you know on your phone uh it, it all the apps you use it's pretty much everything that is on the phone and what i worry about i guess just to kind of restate what i was saying earlier so if my daughter if 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 your child is 16 years old today 
you go back to the OPM breach 10, 12 years ago or whatever it was. And, you know, if, if that same child is on their data is on the OPM breach, they know who they are and they know how they map to other people that likely were in that database and likely had security clearances. Uh, and, and now, you know, all the file information and all the data about those users and you know, their locations. And so it's a wealth of information that can be correlated together is my point. Oh yeah. And, and you have, you know, uh, you know what they like, you know what they don't like. They can show up to your book study because you like books about whatever. And they like, Oh, I love these books too. You know, I want to be your friend, <laughs> you know? So it's a, a very, uh, uh, exciting gift we're giving to the CCP for them to be able to have. Yeah. And I've seen a number when I was on Tucker at, you know, for, for Fox talking about TikTok. They, they were, I think the number was 30% of, kids under 24 years old or 40 40 percent of kids under 24 years or 28 years old uh, use tiktok as a main search as a main source of search instead of google right so so they literally search on tiktok now that's that's where they start controlling information misinformation pushing whatever content they want to push right uh i saw the leadership of tiktok announced they're gonna they're gonna do something to prevent uh, misuse of TikTok during the election. They're gonna label. <laughs> they're gonna label content, but but it's, it's just assuming that the CCP is gonna show up as, and identify as CCP to be like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm CCP. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you misinformation. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they they all very well know, and it's the same on Facebook and every platform, right? They they're hiding in plain sight, and many times in the U.S. they have plenty of people here. They don't need to you know spoof IPs or. I'll do that kind of stuff. Anyway, it's just it's just interesting, and it's 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 pretty scary for kids, right? And um, meanwhile, well, China is banning U.S. technology, so that's that's just interesting, right? That uh, what what do you think that why 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 isn't Congress taking some sort of action in terms of privacy? You know, you've seen GDPR, right, with Europe. Uh, why would you think the U.S. would not have at least some level of protection about the U.S. data? I mean, it's this is the age old question. We've been debating this for years now, right? Uh, and of course you have uh, GDPR in Europe and you have you know some level of privacy things in different states in the United California States. California is a big one, yep. yeah. Yeah, of course we're set up that way. We're set up you know, uh, where, where there are a lot of, of um, you know, action that might be coming from the states. Uh, you know, and you know, I guess the issue is you know, it's a function of uh, you know, privacy uh, and security as a trade-off um, and inconvenience. And so, you know, it, to me, it's, it, you know, there, there's definitely more that can be done. And in the meantime, you know, the public or the, the, the industry needs to lead the way. And I think we need to come up with, uh, you know, ways to, uh, you know, reduce some of the risk. And in fact, you know, I think there might be some lessons from some other things going on in the world that apply here, um, but naturally it's it's hard. So, you know, it's a complex set of issues. It, it requires someone as smart as you, Nicholas, to kind of figure out what the right issues are. And you think about Congress trying to figure out what is the right answer. You know, they want to legislate, but but they can't really specify the technology or the tactic that's used. And so what I've seen in other industries, like in nuclear, um, is where you specify disciplines that need to be in, employed and not necessarily, um, you know, specifying certain, yeah, the how. Right. 
right. right? And that's the trick. That's the balance that's needed. So, so we need to help Congress, uh, you know, you know, come up with that right language, and we need you know government leaders to kind of step in and advocate as well, and striking that right balance so it doesn't hurt business, but also uh, creates a semblance of privacy is needed. And you know, there are definitely identity things that can help, and there's definitely you know uh, security protections that can help. But without that right balance, I don't see how Congress can get it right. Yeah, and I remember when people started talking about GDPR, you know, everybody agreed it was bloated. I mean, so far it's been doing pretty well. I mean, I don't know how much it prevented in terms of uh, issues, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, I would still want something more balanced than GDPR, I think. But like you said, it's a balance between, you know, too much government, not enough. I'm a, obviously a pro for less government after seeing the waste in the government. You know, California goes to the extremes, of course. They also, at the same time, then they banned uh, gas-powered uh, cars. They tell people not to charge their EVs uh, because the grid wasn't capable of sustaining the, the, the charging stations. So, you know, maybe <laughs> I, I, we shouldn't listen to what they, they say too much. I don't know. But at least they do have a privacy thing that's very similar to GDPR. You know, uh, but at the same time, they have pretty much every law in the books because they are believing in this uh, bloated, government constraints and not the self-regulating uh you know citizenship so anyway that's just interesting so we talk about 5g now i want to talk about uh ukraine a little bit um all fun subjects um so you know you look at uh what happened in ukraine uh with russia and uh on the cyber side you know many people thought russia would would go all in with cyber Right and really completely uh, destroy every aspect of the critical infrastructure of uh, Ukraine. They've done so back in 2017 with NotPetya, right? And and that kind of backfired and cost, I, I believe. I think it's too beaten to the U.S. taxpayer in terms of losses and companies in terms of, of losses uh, of the virus spreading, the malware spreading outside of Ukraine as well. Uh, and that's kind of the issue with with these kind of malware, right? You never you know where they start, but you don't know where they end. Uh, so, what's your take on the on the cyber lessons that we've seen from Ukraine? Yeah, and obviously, I don't have specific information to to share, but you know, I can speak anecdotally and and talk about you know just kind of my observations on what I do know and what has been in the public. And you know, one of those things, just to kind of build on your point there, um, you know, there John Deere actually had some equipment stolen and brought back to Russia. And John Deere, in some ways, was very well prepared for this. They had sort of a remote uh, shutoff switch. That's uh, pretty scary, though. I don't know if I like it, but yes. It but, but it helps, right? Like, it helps in this situation. when you're on the right side of the thing. But if uh, they shut off your tractor, I'm sure you're not too happy. Exactly. They decide to do it for the wrong reasons, but yeah. and and that that there is the the two sides of every issue that you know just you know I don't know how you legislate that, um, but you know that's an example of you know I do think that uh, industry in some aspects of critical infrastructure were in fact prepared, and whether that's you know credit to CISA, credit to you know, major, you know, infrastructure providers or folks like John Deere or Schneider Electric, others who have experienced attacks in the past, they're, you know, you know, in, in having some advanced intelligence about what could happen, I think some organizations were actually prepared for it. So I point to John Deere as someone that had a method to 
you know, you might not like it, but they had a method to kind of uh, mitigate or remediate in that particular situation. Uh, because naturally, you know, I think about the great promise of software and the beauty in software is that you can produce a million copies of the exact same software and they do the exact same thing. So like on a drone or on an, a plane, you know, uh, you have a hundred drones in a fleet and they all have identical software. Then you expect with the same inputs, you always get the same outputs because the software always behaves the exact same way. From the attacker's perspective, it's the same thing. So if you find a vulnerability in one of those drones, you can ex build an exploit to compromise any of those drones. And so, you know, I, I, in that case with John Deere, you know, let's hope they were able to prevent, you know, any future compromises as a result of that. Um, but, you know, despite, you know, you know, um, you know, some of the information that we have, I think that the cybersphere is, you know, part of the new model for warfare. Obviously there's firing missiles and there's, you know, sending troops on the ground. Um, but cyber is, you know, a part of the domain, part of the arsenal that is needed. And if you can take out satellites, you can take out GPS, you can disrupt comms, then you can, you know, really disable your adversary from, you know, uh, and, and their, their forces to operate or to, you know, uh, do counterattacks or what have you, because they can't communicate. And so I think communications in general, um, because it's been sustained and, you know, uh, in, in Ukraine, it's interesting because taking out some of the satellites, well, uh, Elon Musk wanted to have a bunch of other satellites there to back up so communications won't be disrupted. Uh, but you can, I guess the point in all of that is communications is essential in war and is essential to preserve in war. And so we need everything we can to protect the communications infrastructure in war. So I think that's a key thing. Another key thing, um, and you touched on it in, in different ways around misinformation, you know, it's, you know, we can't stop everything uh, that, that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, really, if, if you're just going to roll over and blow up buildings and, and try to take over a town, you still have to win the, the, the minds and hearts of the people in that town if you're going to stay there a long time. So controlling the message is a key thing in war and certainly misinformation that can manipulate the response uh, is extremely powerful. And, and, you know, Russia is very good at that. Um, you know, whether they're using automation, using botnets, um, they're strong in kind of influencing things in that regard. So social media and, you know, especially Twitter and, and other things become vulnerable points that influence. Certainly that's good because we're getting information from, you know, war, war is different in the 21st century. We're getting information from uh, social media that we otherwise wouldn't get. Um, but we're also susceptible to misinformation as a result of all that. And so how to counter that is key uh, and could have implications on other wars down the road. Uh, and, you know, and lastly, I would just say, you know, thinking about TikTok and video and all of that, deep fakes are a concern. And, you know, if at some point in the future, uh, it looks like a leader has said one thing and, and actually a leader comes on and says, I never said that. That wasn't me. You can imagine in a stressful time like in war, uh, you know, what kind of confusion that can create. So I think all of these are lessons, um, you know, whether avoided or, you know, uh, potentially, you know, disrupted uh, are lessons in, in thinking about what are the new tactics in war in the 21st century. Um, and ultimately, I'll just say, uh, if you take out the nuclear power plant, you take out a utility, you take out water, 
You can really disrupt the well-functioning normal society from operating. If you take out communications, you can also disrupt the ability for you know, the adversary to respond. And naturally that's always been out there, but there's new forms of communication and new attacks with cyber um, you know, that can be administered and we have to be on guard for it. Yeah, and communication is so important, right? The reason why they, they had so many deaths of general officers is because their uh, communications were so compromised they had no choice but to use cell phones and things that were able to be tracked. And then uh, apparently Ukraine also uh, posted, uh, you know, uh, fake profiles of girls to try to, uh, you know, attract the men to uh, to respond. And, and then they, they got the locations and were able to target those guys that thought they were getting uh, lucky, but they were not getting too lucky after all. So that's uh, interesting. And You've uh, you've also seen you know with Viasa and and the the attack on on the on the you know the, even to the point of of disab disabling the the hardware uh, and having to swap the 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 ground uh, systems um, you know they they without without Starlink and without Elon Musk uh, Ukraine would be in a very tough spot. Starlink was able to ship a bunch of devices and relocate some satellite by the way to to adjust and the coverage of of the uh, Ukrainian uh, nation. Um, that tells you kind of the importance of software-defined uh, uh, weapons slash capabilities. And uh, very quickly, you know, Russia started targeting uh, the, the stalling systems and found, uh, found uh, an issue. Uh, but within two hours, um, you know, the SpaceX team was able to, to do a software update and, and patch it. So that tells you also the, the, the DevSecOps capability of, of doing over the update and, and rapidly spreading, you know, fixes is actually the difference between winning and losing uh, a war. Um, and so that's that's a massive capability. And um, so so the other aspect, of course, of why is, is Russia not using all of the cyber arsenal against Ukraine is, is also because they don't want to start, uh, you know, impacting other nations that would then have a good excuse to get involved in, and, and then spread into World War Three. So I think the reason why you know Russia is now using all of the capabilities they have um, is definitely because they don't want the U.S. to get more involved. Uh, so if, if they were not Petya number two, where they end up uh, costing billions of taxpayer money, I think that could give a good excuse for the U.S. to get involved. So they don't want to do that. Um, at the same time, you know, it's interesting. Just like the same reason why they don't they don't use nuclear weapons, you know. Um, they wouldn't do that, right? It's the same concept. People always struggle as to why people don't use all of the weapons that people have at their disposal, but it's kind of the same logic, right? Uh, not to mention on the nuclear side, the, the, the fall downs would fall back into Russia. So I'm not sure that would be uh, very useful. So there's, there's, there's things like this, and it's the same thing, you know, kind of the ripple effects, you know, the butterfly effect, whatever you want to call it. Right where where you know where you begin, but you don't know when you when you where it stops. And uh, I think on the cyber side, they don't want to give uh, countries excuses to get involved, and so they're not using all of the capabilities they have. But at the same time, I think Ukraine also learned quite well from the NotPetya time how to harden uh, their critical infrastructure much better. And I think they did a pretty good job at doing that to make sure that uh, power and water uh, uh, capabilities are not disrupted by basic you know capabilities where hackers were not already dormant into the systems like we have here with so many different companies providing grid and, and water uh, capabilities to the United States. Um, that's definitely an impediment we have having so many companies to deal with. We can't really, CISA has no ability to go and help so many different companies 
just with a grid aspect. It's, it's too many things to worry about. Uh, it doesn't scale. So, uh, all right. So we talked about um, Russia and, and, and Ukraine. Let's take a look at uh, uh, now, you know, what's going on. And, and you kind of mentioned, uh, right, the, uh, uh, the importance of... Uh, of Taiwan and then kind of the, the chips, but but you mentioned communications, right? And uh, you know every exercise we've done at the Pentagon, uh, tabletop exercise, you know, in the in the situation room where we we simulate attacks um, every single time within 24 hours, the United States had no comms anymore against China, right? So we'll be in the same spot than than Russia, right? Effectively. Um, what do you think is at stake when it comes to the, the technology and then, you know, more broadly, uh, maybe as ge geopolitical uh, aspects <laughs> when it comes to Taiwan and China? You know, the, just yesterday, again, I think or the day before, the president said that the uh, U.S. would be involved in, in helping Taiwan if China was to decide to attack. Um, I don't know how much he means it or not, but... Uh, at least he said, you know, we, we we would have troops and things like that. So it's not just like Ukraine giving money, although we gave a lot of money to Ukraine, by the way, probably too much money. I don't know. But um, what do you what do you think about Taiwan? Well, you know, I guess all situations are different. So it's it's hard to totally compare Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, but one of the big differences in Taiwan, as as you had indicated, is really this semiconductor industry, the electronics industry, the manufacturing and all of that, that that's so vital to today's, you know, uh, economic infrastructure, you know, uh, and, and all the technology advancement is in part built on what, what happens in Taiwan. Um, and, you know, there's a big scare, obviously, related to grain uh, shipments in Ukraine and, you know, the supply of grain, obviously a massive issue. Uh, but the technological implications in Taiwan are, are, are serious and real. And naturally, a lot of companies are trying to diversify their own, you know, uh, abilities or their their own, you know, uh, manufacturing plants and, and diversifying where they are. And so, I think there's a point at which, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, industry is diversified. Uh, but when that happens, you know, I think that can that and and uh, the economic ties to Taiwan shift. I think that is when. Uh, China, so I think China might wait. I think China might wait until, you know, uh, they, they do play the long game. And obviously it's been 20 some years, uh, you know, um, since the late 90s. But nonetheless, you know, uh, as countries diversify their manufacturing and their supply chain itself, uh, that makes Taiwan more vulnerable. And so today there's an economic interest that's vital. And that's why I think the, the threat um, you know, of, of getting involved maybe higher than Ukraine. With that said, I also think China knows that there's economic ties that sustain the globe. And if they do attack and that does get disrupted, you know, much like your, your point around, you know, kind of avoiding certain cyber attacks in, in Ukraine so other people don't get more actively involved, the economic interests that happen in Taiwan today um, could be compromised. And that would affect a lot of organizations, which would mean more and more countries would have to take a closer look. So I think the technological aspects uh, make Taiwan a little bit different. Uh, and, you know, naturally the geopolitical situation uh, and the and the kind of the, the competitive nature of China and the United States 
and just you know uh, the influence in the region, um, you know, is is a serious thing. So obviously, United States doesn't want to just kind of give that up, uh, and naturally, China wants to exert more and more influence. Um, but I think the economic ties is one dimension that you can't ignore when it comes to Taiwan. So Congress just passed uh, what is it, fifty-four billion on a on the chip uh, law to help uh, uh, American companies bring back some uh, manufacturing of, of chips here. Um, do you think that's anecdotal compared to the volume of, of money spent on the chip industry? Do you think it's, it's good enough? It's a good first step or is it just anecdotal and a running error? Uh, you know, I don't know the exact numbers. I think it's a great step though. Um, and, you know, obviously more will be needed, but if we, we need something that helps to jumpstart in uh, as long as, that demand continues and that supply uh, delivers on what's expected, then, you know, I mean, an injection of that kind of money can make a big difference, right? Um, there are folks like Gilman Louie who are doing some really interesting things, you know, with uh, public-private partnerships. They're, they're certainly hoping for government uh, investment, but they're not relying on it. Uh, and Gilman has, uh, you know, a new uh, organization that is, you know, looking to jumpstart investments in things that are critical to the national security, critical to the well-functioning society. And so I also think that it will be supplemented by organizations like that. Um, and, you know, behind that initiative was both uh, Eric Schmidt and Peter Thiel uh, and had support from, you know, uh, folks on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Um, and so, you know, I do think there will be- the only one pretty much of the last two years, probably. Everybody had real, <laughs> real join support of both, both sides. That's good. Yep. Uh, only one. And, uh, you know, but I do think that, um, you know, it's what, what matters is how some of these organizations execute when they start building stuff. They, they need to build great products with that money that they have. And if they do more, will come from it. Um, so that's what I'm hoping for. And I do think we have to diversify and I do think we have a major security vulnerability or threat to national security. Uh, and that's technology dependency you know, in countries that may no longer be able to supply that or may be, you know, uh, somehow hampered in terms of ability for the U.S. to to source and from uh, to source technology from certain areas. So, you know, I do think uh, funding something like that is a good idea for the United States. Well, it's definitely a good idea. Just so you know, the, the entire um, semiconductor market in 2022 is 700 billion. Um, that's uh, the revenue of the market. So that doesn't include how much people spend in R&D. Okay. Um, so um, 55 billion is, is what? Maybe, uh, you know, 7%. It's not bad, but it's, it's, it's probably, I mean, the, the fact is companies should have proactively done it anyway. So the government is just stepping up. They shouldn't have to do that. But uh, I get why we are doing it. And I'm sorry for it. But um I still wonder how much of that is going to make a difference because I'm, I just know how good the government is at wasting money. So uh, <laughs> of the 55 billion, if, if, if we get 5 billion spent on chips and actual manufacturing is probably, you know, the best outcome you could get uh, with that. I loss. hope so, it's higher than that, Nicholas. I hope it's higher than that. 10% is, you know, 10% is actually not bad for the government. 20 is very good and, and 30 is like exceptional, you know, so... Uh, Anyway, it's kind of the, the issue is all the bureaucracy and all the nonsense and all the wrong things and and uh, lobbying and, and all that good stuff. So who knows? But um, um, so obviously you talked about 
you know, China also feeling the the impact. At the same time, I feel like they, they got away so much with COVID, you know, uh, including to the point where they were so powerful. And I think that really that should scare a lot of people, kind of the power of, of, of China to convince people not to talk about the lab, you know, ban, ban the story, even talking about the story when people are dying and making it look like a conspiracy theory where, where us and the government were pretty convinced from the get-go that he came out of the lab. And, and now I don't think most government people would have a doubt that, that the virus came from a lab. Um, you know, my, my only question was, did, it, did, did China do it on purpose or by accident? That was my only real question I had, not whether or not he came from a lab or not. But the <laughs> fact that they managed to, you know, convince uh, Facebook and others to ban it, right, to ban the story so no one could talk about it, that scares me a lot, right? Because I can tell you if the virus came from, uh, you know, Egypt, I can tell you we will call it the Egyptian virus and no one would, you know, think twice. But yeah, you know, when people started calling it, you know, China, China virus and stuff, people freaked out. Um, you know, I, I wonder if now they feel like, hey, you know, we got away with it. We sold a bunch of equipment. All the masks came from China. They made billions from it, right? Uh, I, I wonder what would be the the... the the parallel to, to a Taiwan disruption because they will start selling the chips in the meantime, right? So then we, we you know, we're, we're then forced to buy chips from China. What do you think when you see companies like Apple, right? That use manufacturers in Taiwan. I, I don't know if you've seen the story, but Apple, you know, buys chips in Taiwan and China just changed the law for, in, you know, for imports, right? To bring the chips in China to then build the phone, right? They mandate that the the label from the chip coming from Taiwan says made in China, not made in Taiwan. So Apple forced their vendors in Taiwan to change the labels on their product to say made in China so they could bring it into China to build the phone. So then we can end up having a shitty phone at a twelve hundred bucks uh, back in the U.S. Right. With no innovation whatsoever for the last five years. So. When American companies start being complicit on that, right, just because they want to ship the device, uh, how are we going to win this? Well, hopefully there's other controls at play, you know, and uh, organizations like Apple do have some other controls in play to ensure they know what's going on each of those devices. However, uh, that doesn't really solve the problem globally, um, you know, and so most organizations don't have the same quality control and manufacturing control that someone like Apple does. Uh, and so, you know, the, the risk more generally uh, is very, very high. Uh, and so we need ways to know what, um, you know, I guess the, the, you know, what the processes are like, and we need confidence that organizations are going to do that. But I think organizations need to diversify where they make things. Uh, and really, you know, crack down themselves on their own quality control and their own security controls that are in place. Because otherwise, we do lead and become vulnerable to some kind of surveillance state that knows exactly what's going on at the chip level, at the data level, at the application level, and all levels. And that's what we have to try to avoid in order to maintain, you know, a, a free society, free to engage, you know, as we wish. Um, so I think there's a lot at stake. And uh, I think the controls in place by organizations, uh, you know, they need to realize that it is actually a national security issue, but it's actually 
you know, what is the uh, international order that, that you really want to participate in? Do you want a top-down, uh, heavy surveillance state, um, you know, model or something of, you know, free markets and, and you know, a series of interdependent technologies that uh, apply best practices towards security and, and protecting uh, the users and consumers? Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right, last question for you today. Um, so as it stands, and not, not in the future, not projections, not maybes, but with what we know, what we're doing today, what's happening in the world, will the U.S. win or lose the dual race, um, AI cyber race with China? Well, as it stands. Nicholas, I know you'll be disappointed since you believe America is winning the race and is so far ahead that, uh, you know, what I say may come to a surprise to you. Uh, uh, but all kidding aside, I do think we're behind. I do think we'll, we'll lose. Um, I do think a lot of things have to change. Um, part of what has to change is the investment in technology going forward. And part of what needs to change is an acknowledgement that, you know, we need to preserve uh, you know, the technology across cyber, across 5G, across quantum, across AI, ML, we need to preserve our leadership in areas that matter going forward. Uh, and my fear is that we do fall into uh, some kind of surveillance uh, in our day-to-day -day lives that we, none of us really want. Uh, and, and so I think there's kind of a collision course here of, you know, the surveillance state versus a series of uh, interdependent connected networks operating, you know, allowing for the free exchange of ideas and the free exchange of, of, of commerce uh, that's at stake. And, you know, if we don't invest further in these areas, and I think you have some really good ideas on what we should be investing in, but I just look at cyber, look at 5G, look at quantum, look at AI, ML and things like that. And yes, we have many talents and a lot of great companies, but somehow, um, you know, we're going to have to accelerate our ability for all of that to come together in a way that can counter what China is building or has been investing in in the past. Yeah, and I think what people often forget is while you have a lot of U.S. companies leading in AI and, and ML and, and things like that, they don't do any business with DOD and, and the Defense Department. And, and so then you end up having a, a vast disparity of capabilities between the military side and the and the commercial side, which is not the case in China. So despite being a little bit behind, uh, China on the commercial side has the advantage on the on the government side, because of course they force all their companies to do business with the CCP. Um, and that's, that's the big difference that I think people don't realize. Uh, they also have 120 million science and technology experts, uh, or at least graduate. Um, that's a third of the United States right there. So just volume wise, to be able to compete will be very tough. So we have to be smarter, faster, stronger, you know, with leaner, less bureaucracy, you know, uh, more eagerness. And they're very motivated, very eager to get it done. We're a little bit complacent and winning for too long. You know, when, when a when a nation starts winning for too long, and despite despite the fact that you, you've seen the Afghanistan debacle and, and things like that, that should pretty pretty wake people up. But but even with that, right, people often dismiss it to go back to their daily lives, right? And uh, we go back to the Kumbaya universe where people are more focused on fighting between parties than realizing that the real enemy is not inside of the United States, despite some of the current uh, politicians telling us 
uh, but it's really with China. And that's, uh, you know, dividing us is just um, helping China win. And that's that's what scares me a lot. I agree. Well, we're going to give you the last words in a second. I'm going to remind everybody of, of uh, uh, the next uh, the next episode, next, uh, next Tuesday. We're going to have a great friend and also someone that's coming with an amazing background between uh, the nuclear center in the Air Force and the software. He was the first uh, chief software engineer in the Air Force. Um, and he's, he's brought DevSecOps to GBSD, the, the nuclear program. Uh, Kyle Fox will be joining us next Tuesday, 1 p.m. We're going to have a discussion about not just, um, you know, cybersecurity and and, uh, and the DevSecOps, but really the rise of software-defined weapons and kind of the, the challenges and what it takes to succeed in bringing, you know, DevSecOps to jets and bombers and nuclear systems. Um, we're going to talk about his, his new program ca called the Sentinel, and uh, how is the U.S. doing when it comes to uh, uh, the race against China as well? So it's going to be a lot of fun with Cal Fox uh, next Tuesday at 1 p.m. I uh, wanted to thank uh, Joe for joining us. Well, so lucky to have you uh, to share with, uh, with us all these uh, great uh, discussions. We'll give you now the last uh, words to, for you to, uh, to share your thoughts. And I wanted to thank everybody for, for joining us. And... Uh, Wanted to thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you, uh, Nick, and you know I certainly appreciate the chance to be on the show uh, and you know and to talk about these 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 issues. You know, uh, software development practices that um, you know that you brought to the DoD and have championed for so long, I think, are vitally important for uh, you know for all of our you know organizations, whether in industry or in the government or in DoD, uh, for for the U.S. to remain competitive. And I think, uh, you know, if that's how I could leave it is, you know, um, we all have a duty, I think, and you led by example to innovate, to invest in technology uh, and really to push the envelope uh, and apply good security practices. And, you know, when when folks like you and others, uh, you know, go out and, you know, you know and, and push forward, I think we all win. And so I would just encourage everybody else to follow your lead. Uh, to invest in technology, to invest in security, to think about your processes, and to innovate. And and really, in the end, that matters as much as all the investment other organizations make. Uh, but doing things in a in a common sense way and thinking about the problems and innovating ultimately is good. And I think if we do, we 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 can you know rise to a lot of the challenges that the country faces. We can rise to you know a, a lot of the challenges that impede progress or. Um, and ultimately, I think about in the 5G world, uh, you know, with a series of inter interdependent economic systems uh, operating in a zero trust environment, you know, preserving the ability for open society to operate in the way we have, I think is, you know, is one motivating factor that we can all use to carry forward to, uh, you know, follow your lead to innovate and do the right thing. So I appreciate being on the show today and sharing some thoughts on these topics and certainly appreciate your questions. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Everybody wanted to thank you again. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and more importantly, keep up the good fight so our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China 20 years from now. Stay safe, see you soon, see you Tuesday. Bye-bye.